Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Death to America. I'm your host, Death, and today I'll be discussing a topic of longtime personal interest, the Church of Scientology. The religion, if you can call it that, of Scientology is known more for its celebrity adherence and aggressive donation collection than its conflict with the U.S. government, but that history of dissent is far more interesting and will be my focus today. The culmination of Scientology's self-described war with the government is in the 1990s, but to understand how Scientology emerged victorious against the government, one must first understand the history of the church, which is inseparable from the life of its founder, L. Ron Hubbard, and his heir, David Miscavige. Lafayette Ronald Hubbard was born in Nebraska in 1911. Hubbard's father was a naval officer, and his duty stations saw the family relocate around the United States during Ron's formative years. Living with his grandparents while his father deployed to Guam, Hubbard joined his high school newspaper, his first venture into publishing written works. After his expulsion from high school due to poor grades, he retained his interest in literature, primarily writing short stories. His college career at George Washington University was similarly lackluster, and he faced academic probation. Following a poorly organized exploration to the Caribbean, Hubbard opted not to return to school. While living in the D.C. area, Hubbard met his first wife, Margaret, who he married quickly and who shortly afterwards gave birth to his eldest son, Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, Jr. To support his new family, Hubbard began writing science fiction, a profession for which he was famously paid a penny a word. This payment structure incentivized producing a high volume of works. Hubbard would retain a similar level of literary output for the rest of his life, leading to him holding the world record for highest number of published books at 1,084. Despite a prolific output and being fairly well received, the Hubbards were consistently short of money, which was partly due to Ron's bad fiscal tendencies. Ron's life, in his own telling, underwent a great shift in 1938 when he underwent a dental surgery and, quote, died for a few minutes. Whether this really occurred or he had a hallucinatory experience from anesthesia can't be known, but following the surgery, Hubbard wrote a manuscript which laid the foundation for much of his later works. Titled Excalibur, Hubbard made wild claims, such as some readers of the text committing suicide following finish, finishing the work. Assuming that claim is true, one wonders if that is perhaps a testament to Excalibur's writing quality rather than its revelatory content. Despite Hubbard's huge assertions, the manuscripts did not attract the attention of publishers, and Hubbard dejectedly continued his writing day job. History offered Hubbard another shift in his life with the onset of World War II. Perhaps aiming to emulate his father's naval service, Ron joined the Navy, where he received training as an intelligence officer. Initially set for deployment in the Pacific, Hubbard's superiors found him an ill fit for his designated role and redeployed him stateside, which he resented greatly. Petitioning for a command after being assigned a desk job, Hubbard was given command of a gunboat, a role for which he was again removed shortly after. His superiors cited his ill temperament for command in their decision. Despite this, Hubbard was again given a new command, this time of a submarine chaser in the Pacific, stationed just off the coast of California. His command was marred by mistaking a magnetic signature for an enemy submarine and firing on it, and then mistaking an island for an uninhabited U.S. territory, when in actuality it was Mexican land, and then firing upon it. His mistakes sparked a diplomatic complaint and his removal, again, from command. Citing various ailments, Hubbard spent much of the rest of his active tenure in the Navy and medical facilities. Following his exit from the Navy, Hubbard met and moved in with Jack Parsons, a rocket engineer at Caltech who moonlighted as an occultist and student of Aleister Crowley. Parsons also seems to have been an early adopter of the Zoomer or Broccoli haircut. Hubbard assisted Parsons with various sex magic rituals, and Parsons wrote very positively of Hubbard to Aleister Crowley himself. Despite this, Hubbard, now estranged from his wife Margaret, struck up a relationship with Sarah, Parsons' girlfriend. Ron and Sarah would go on to attempt to defraud Parsons by convincing him to invest in yachts, which Ron and Sarah would sail from the East Coast to the West for a profit. Of note is the fact that Crowley warned Parsons that such a thing may occur. The new couple moved to Florida, having left Parsons virtually destitute. It is in this time period of his life that Hubbard wrote his famous, though embarrassing, affirmations. The work is a series of declarative statements that may be an attempt to self-treat his various health and social ills. An example reads, quote, Your stomach trouble you used as an excuse to keep the Navy from punishing you. You are free of the Navy.
In the same period, Hubbard wrote to the VA to request some form of psychological help, a request which it seems was never addressed. In the late 40s, Hubbard asserted that he had volunteered at a psychiatric clinic where he developed his theories on the mind and how to address mental ailments. Through a sympathetic publisher, Hubbard met and collaborated with Dr. Joseph Winter, a relationship which produced a refined version of Hubbard's ideas. Stated briefly, Hubbard believed that negative experiences were stored as memory, quote, engrams in the so-called reactive mind. These engrams could be, quote, cleared through a form of counseling called auditing. Once these engrams were removed, a person would be, quote, clear, a state which Hubbard asserted would produce improved intelligence and cure physical problems such as poor eyesight. 1950 saw Hubbard's work, Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, published to substantial popularity. Hubbard, experiencing the first major commercial success of his literary career, dedicated himself to promoting his new science. Unfortunately for him, a combination of mainstream scientific com condemnation and the failure of a, quote, clear woman to demonstrate the abilities Hubbard claimed would manifest shattered the burgeoning Dianetics movement. Rapid financial decline plagued the organizations Hubbard had set up to promote Dianetics, a problem which contributed to the end of his and Sarah's marriage, which proved to be another PR nightmare. Employees of Hubbard's would kidnap the couple's young daughter and effectively hold her for ransom until Sarah issued a public ret retraction of various abuse allegations she'd leveled at Hubbard. Ron was able to save himself from total financial disaster by finding a new, rich benefactor to support the establishment of a new Dianetics Institute, but bankruptcy proceedings soon saddled the new organization with the debts of the old, and Hubbard split from his benefactor, kicking off a long-running legal battle over the intellectual property rights of Dianetics. In this time period, Hubbard met his third wife, the most influential and infamous by far, Mary Sue. At the time, she was 18 years old to Hubbard's 41. Moving to Arizona, Hubbard opened the Hubbard Association of Scientologists International. The name Scientology was a noticeable departure from Dianetics and indicated a firm departure from a, quote, science of the mind to a science of the spirit. This shift was, according to Hubbard, prompted by a, quote, new line of research, but more than likely a response to legal disputes over the Dianetics IP and a desire to keep future endeavors centralized. Dianetics suffered, as so many other New Age sciences did, from schisms and total freedom of exploration, which limited Hubbard's ability to exercise control and subsequently make money. Adding elements such as the e-meter, a device which me measures electricity in the body, to Scientology's auditing process, Hubbard aimed to make the organization's practices more technical and impressive. Early Scientology organizations, commonly referred to as orgs, were structured as franchises, newly popularized corporate structure in the era. The obvious benefit of the structure was to minimize overhead while giving Hubbard a steady flow of cash. Explicitly citing concerns about being attacked for practicing bunk science, Hubbard incorporated Scientology as a church in 1953. This was certainly a cynical move as Hubbard continued to market Scientology as a research and results-oriented institution. The income Hubbard personally accrued from the success of Scientology allowed him to purchase the famous St. Hill Manor in England from the Maharaja of Jaipur, which would go on to become Scientology's headquarters in Europe. The lifestyle of the Hubbard family prompted the IRS to revoke Scientology's tax-exempt status in 1958. This fed into Ron's persistent paranoia that Scientology was the target of conspiracies by medical organizations and shadowy government entities. In fact, the FBI did have a file on him, but their initial assessments wrote him off as a kook. Additionally, Scientology was banned in several Australian states based on spurious medical claims, and Hubbard began to fear his position in the UK was untenable, prompting him to try and locate a place for Scientology to operate. Such was his negative reputation, though, that even overtures to the pariah state of Rhodesia went ignored. Increasingly moving towards a siege mentality, Hubbard wrote the infamous fair game policy, which indicated that anyone categorized as a church enemy was fair game for any form of harassment and injury. He also formed the equally infamous Guardian's Office, which publicly handled everything from PR to legal affairs, but secretly operated as an intelligence arm to investigate, blackmail, and destroy enemies of the church, making them the active hand of the fair game policy. 
Mary Sue Hubbard would go on to head the Guardian's office, acting as the barrier to Hubbard's Stalin. It is in this period that Hubbard wrote the doctrine that most people are probably familiar with thanks to the South Park, that is the story of Lord Xenu and his galactic confederacy. After his failure to secure a new locale from which to operate and barred from returning to the UK, Hubbard embraced his latent naval fantasies, purchasing several ships and crewing them with a semi-monastic volunteer corps, the Sea Org, which would go on to act effectively as the priest class of the church. Admiral Hubbard, as one might call him, and his flotilla drifted from country to country, seeking a friendly government to allow them to set up operations. But Hubbard's general kookery and probable criminal status in the U.S. dissuaded any country from welcoming him and his band for very long. Starting in the early 1970s, Hubbard created a corps of effectively children to attend him and his family called the Commodore's Messenger Office. I mention this mainly to note that this is where the other primary figure in Scientology, David Miscavige, got his start in the church. Through the mid-70s, Hubbard's health began to deteriorate, a fact that likely contributed to his decision to find a location in the U.S. to establish a base. Clearwater, Florida was selected and the church quickly began to acquire real estate in the area. In this period, the Guardian's office stepped up its efforts to target figures in publications who spoke negatively of the church under the so-called Operation Snow White. Disinformation campaigns to put out the idea that Hubbard wasn't governing the church were also conducted. The IRS had issued guidance that Hubbard could not be affiliated with church leadership, a guidance which he ignored. As part of its operations, the Guardian's office had placed agents in various government offices and had also attempted to steal government documents. One such effort on the IRS building saw two Scientologists arrested, which triggered an FBI raid on the Guardian's office and effectively destroyed it after Mary Sue Hubbard and nearly a dozen other Scientologists were imprisoned. Ron himself skated persecution as an unindicted co-conspirator. The arrest of his wife and mounting fears of legal prosecution drove Hubbard into isolation, which greatly empowered the Commodore's messengers in particular David Miscavige, who effectively forced out Mary Sue from Scientology's leadership prior to her imprisonment. Hubbard's increasing paranoia, and by some reports delusion, were compounded by IRS threats of indictment on charges of tax fraud in the mid-80s. The stress and consequences of an unhealthy lifestyle caught up with him, and Hubbard died in 1986. Hubbard's death officially ended a long chapter of Scientology's history, but the removal of the founder did not ultimately deter the ire of authorities, particularly the IRS. Hubbard had engaged in a number of legal shenanigans through the 60s and 70s to get around the IRS's revocation of the church's tax exemption in 1958, and was reasonably successful due to the plethora of organizations the church maintained, each of which was judged separately by the IRS. Moving assets and money became the primary means by which the church skirted taxation. Additionally, Hubbard encouraged Scientologists to agitate against taxes generally, writing that the income tax had its root in the communist model and was un-American. However, Hubbard's shell game was not a long-term solution, and towards the end of his life, the IRS assessed the church probably owed around a billion dollars in back taxes, with net assets of the church only accounting for about a fifth of that. David Miscavige's right hand, Marty Rathbun, headed up the effort to achieve full tax exemption for the church. Even with Hubbard's death, the issue of the tax bill became an existential crisis for the church. Miscavige, having effectively seized control of the church under a new umbrella corporate entity called the Religious Technology Center prior to Hubbard's death, faced losing the power he had inherited when Hubbard died. His sole mission became defeating the IRS. Using his position as head of the newly formed Office of Special Affairs, the successor to the disgraced Guardian's office, Miscavige ordered the investigation of the personal lives of IRS officials. The heavy-handed methods of burglary and poison were left behind, and the OSA instead focused on finding corruption, either personal or professional, with which to bludgeon the reputation of the IRS. The actions of OSA Scientologists were described by our IRS agents as, quote, blatant harassment and they were blamed for any number of occurrences, from missing pets to leaky garden hoses. Emboldened by at least some success in investigating agents, the church published the Freedom Magazine, which highlighted government corruption. The publication was handed out for free on the steps of the IRS building in Washington. Scientology developed a reputation as a pervasive hawk of the tax agency, which endowed it with at least amicable relations with various anti-tax organizations. The church also found its own anti-tax groups, most notably the Citizens for an Alternative Tax System, 
which advocated Hubbard's idea of a national sales tax to replace the income tax. Miscavige himself authored an op-ed which called for a VAT tax instead of an income tax. What likely made Scientology's attacks so stinging was that it did not limit itself to generalized attacks on the institution and policies of the IRS, but singled out individual agents and officials for scrutiny and attack. As we know, an institution offers a shield to those who staff it. It acts as a layer of separation between oneself and the general population. But personal attacks that place one in an institutional context invert that, prote that protection, damaging not only the individual's reputation, but the, the institution by its association with that person. The largest example of this was when the church sued 17 individual IRS agents, claiming a conspiracy against the church and demanding tens of millions of dollars in damages. In the era of the early 90s, with the Republican in the White House and anti-tax forces generally mobilized, Miscavige chose to make his move. Accounts of what exactly happened vary between the church and government records, but the story likely is this. David Miscavige and Marty Rathbun arrived to the IRS building unannounced and requested a meeting with the commissioner of the IRS, Fred Goldberg. Goldberg, doubtlessly surprised to have the head of Scientology and his right-hand man in the building, cleared his schedule and took the meeting. Miscavige, sure of his position, offered Goldberg a deal. Scientology would cease all investigations of the IRS, stop sponsoring anti-IRS activism, and end the harassment of IRS agents. In exchange, Goldberg would effectively grant Scientology complete and total tax exemption. One imagines Goldberg, who'd surely heard the complaints from his underlings of bothersome Scientologists, relishing the opportunity to return the IRS to unquestioned top dog status, able to act with impunity. Of course, he'd have to write off about a billion dollars, but the true value of what Miscavige was offering was to return IRS prestige, or at least to stop dragging it down. Goldberg eagerly took the deal. The details took a few more years to iron out and included such concessions to the IRS as a monitoring board to look over Scientology's finances. However, the church was allowed to choose the members on the board. In securing this deal, Miscavige gained what Hubbard never could, legitimacy in the eyes of the government as a religious institution. The victory over the IRS elevated Miscavige to nearly prophetic heights within Scientology, and he made sure to capitalize on that, filling L.A. Sports Arena with supporters in 1993 when he announced the deal with the IRS, declaring triumphantly, the war is over. Unfortunately for Miscavige, that is not the end of the story. The church would go on to face difficulties in the new millennium, with leaks of church secrets earning it ridicule and mockery around the world. But the long arm of the law stayed restrained, and the church retains its tax-exempt status to this day. Even legal challenges to the special treatment Scientology receives, which one would think violates the Constitution, have failed to change the status quo. That brings us to today. Now you've heard the history of Scientology, I'm sure you may have questions such as, what does Scientology's victory over the IRS mean for the rest of us? Is Scientology the good guy? Should I become a Scientologist? I will do my best to answer these questions in the commentary portion of today's episode. So that concludes the scripted portion of uh, today's episode. I hope you've learned something about Scientology. I'm probably going to throw in a timestamp in the description in case uh, a listener already knows everything about Scientology and just wants to hear my thoughts because obviously my opinions are the only thing worth hearing in this in this episode. Uh, I, I will say, I mean, I knew a lot about Scientology. It's, it's a personal interest of mine, but the sheer volume of stuff that the church has gotten up to over the years, I mean, the Guardian's office, I, I very briefly went over a lot of the stuff they had done, uh, but they had large numbers and very... Each thing was had a lot of people involved, large numbers of operations. One specifically I mentioned was Operation Snow White, uh, which was designed to you know, basically clear the name of Scientology in the public. But, I mean, it had sub-operations targeting individuals. Uh, you know, I mean, they, I, there's no doubt in my mind that the uh, Guardian's Office killed people. Um, Scientology has definitely killed people, if not, you know, with a gun to the back of the head, certainly via uh, harassing them to the point of suicide. So that's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of uh, fun stuff you could learn about that. I think the, the era of that is, is certainly gone, um, if, if, or at least minimized to the point of almost irrelevance. Uh, Scientology uh, kind of has a uh, reputation of being very litigious, so they'll take you to court over defamation stuff. We're at a point now, I mean, they can still do 
you know, maybe in a specific instance, if you violate some of their copyright, they'll take you to court if they, you know, assuming they actually have a case. Uh, but they no longer have the, I don't think, the will to take uh, large numbers of people to court over uh, defaming them, <laughs> especially when uh, it's such a popular meme. I mean, the Scientology episode of South Park was, you know, something of a big deal. I think a lot of people learned a lot about the, the general kookiness, but I think they probably have bigger problems <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, such as constantly having to build new churches to retain their tax exempt status, because the way that tax exemption, this is all religions, not just specifically Scientology's, um, you have to be, you can't just keep cash, right? You can't just have a big pile of money to jump into if you're like the head of the religion. You have to be building uh, buildings, you have to be doing services, and because their income comes, income comes from services, you can't really have that going out. So they just buy real estate, basically. Um, I have seen, I've been to a Scientology building before. Um, I mean, I will say this, they, they are not terrible interior decorators in, in many cases. Um, if you ever have an opportunity and have a uh, ability to resist a sales pitch, it is worth going to a Scientology church, uh, church building, whatever you want to call it. They have different names and different functions for their buildings too. There's you can find charts online with breakdowns of oh, this is a uh, you know a, a level five organization down to level three, and then if you go down to Clearwater, which I have done once, albeit not to see Scientology stuff. Um, they own, it's got to be like half of the real estate, especially in the downtown. They they will pay, even if you don't, they don't own the building, they'll pay for your facade to be reworked to what they want it to look like. They're, they're very particular about many things, and they, despite having maybe 30,000 adherents in uh, the United States, seek to assert dominance as much as possible. And this is something Hubbard talked a lot about with, you know, controlling your area. Um, he wrote obviously like a thousand plus books but one of the things he's talking about is power is a a thing that scientologists should seek to control wherever they can um, obviously he had a whole doctrine about like celebrities too and that was kind of a function of his uh, idea of accruing power is if we get celebrities on board and talking good about scientology other people will, uh, will have a positive view of it i will say in the 80s and 90s, and even, I guess, into the early 2000s, that was a pretty good means to do it, uh, because you have quite a few celebrities, even if they don't talk, you know, exclusively about Scientology, just saying something pretty good about it is enough to kind of kick people off the trail of, oh, it's a bad thing, or, you know, maybe even make them look into it uh, themselves. You know, and the problem, though, with that is... It's like a high-risk, high-reward, uh, right? So you've got a celebrity who are, <laughs> particularly in Hollywood, are usually known for being, you know, something of a character, um, and they're unstable, and, you know, they can go off and, you know, turn against you just as easily. Re Leah Remini, of course, is the, the famous example of that. She's got her own show, uh, Scientology in the Aftermath, where she just talks about how bad Scientology is with a bunch of uh, former Scientologists. And I will say, I don't, I don't put as much stock in that, personally, as someone who's, like, looked into Scientology a bunch. I think the best examples of, like, Scientology investigation are pretty much normal people and people who have left Scientology and aren't famous about it. But I will plug his show as, like, Chris Shelton on YouTube. He himself was a member of the Sea Org. He was high up in leadership, and then he just... You know, spends a lot of time introducing people to, I guess, what Scientology actually believes, and interviewing people. I mean, he has some some really great interviews, uh, and it's it's just it's weird to to imagine some of these people running around. They seem like highly functioning people. Many of them are actually very intelligent, and they just have this like just like a cult. But it's not like a in the woods, you know, uh, prepping uh, for the nuclear apocalypse or when the comet's going to come and beam you all up it's just like basically a cult where you either work for 12 hours a day and then you have a day job uh because they don't actually pay you or they pay you very little or you just give some inordinate amount of money for uh glorified or not even glorified it's much worse therapy so i want to address i guess some of the the main things that i the questions that i had at the end um <laughs> first one 
right off the bat, should you become a Scientologist? No, absolutely not. You should not become a Scientologist. Uh, there are, I will say, having spoken to a few Scientologists and seen a lot of media about people who were Scientologists, they will say that they did, most of them at least, got something out of it. Uh, particularly to do with like confidence and communication with you know with their peers or you know people in their professional life, um, but you can get that pretty easily with even the most generic self-help courses or any kind of uh, you know confidence boosting exercises. There's, there's no need to go pay six hundred dollars an hour to have auditing to get you know your body thetans taken off or whatever. It's just not. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I will say this also, my limited experience with Scientologists in, you know, the last several years, basically the modern day, uh, has, has been odd. I will say I have never met a young Scientologist. Uh, I'm sure they do exist. Scientologists, in some cases, in many cases, have families. But it seems mostly like a lot of old people. I will say one guy in particular, he was like a 65-year-old man, then he gets into Scientology, and my sense from what he was telling me was he was basically just lonely and was looking to join any group. I mean, he would have joined a chess club if, you know, the different pamphlet had been handed to him. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a growing thing, contrary to what they'll say. Uh, I mean, I think they count every book they've ever sold uh, for each, you know, with, you know, 10 people buy a book, they count uh, all, all of them as like people impacted by Scientology. Uh, so also don't buy a book because they'll track you down. Um, uh, but the other kind of thing to note, interestingly, about Scientologists is there isn't a, there's many, many religions, you know, there's, oh, have a lot of kids. You know, the, the Protestant Christians have like the Quiverful movement, which is like literally have as many kids as you possibly can like army of god sort of thing scientologists are not discouraged from having children but they are on some levels actively uh not encouraged in the sea org which is like the the priest class and in, you know probably a couple thousand of them worldwide you're effectively banned from having children um i think they've run into legal problems where they can't actually say no you can't have kids uh, but they have done things where if they find out you're pregnant, they will really pressure you to get an abortion. Um, if you do actually end up having a kid, they will kick you out, you know, kick you to the curb rather, you know, <laughs> rather ungracefully. Um, or even if you can keep the kid, uh, they're going to put it in a, uh, put him in a, a very not good daycare, if it's, you can even call it that. And the other, this is another problem where uh, Scientologists don't, at least on paper, don't see children as children. They see them as reincarnated beings in a smaller body. Therefore, things like child labor are, are like, okay. I mean, any Scientologist who grew up in it, uh, particularly in a more Scientology community, not just, like, living off, you know, in some suburb somewhere, you know, will tell you that they were working probably from a, a young age. Uh, Leah Remini recounts that. I think she was working at, like, a call center at, like, age 12 or something like that. Uh, so there's my point being is that Scientology is not a religion that is seems very dedicated to a natural growth. Uh, you can see kind of the legacy of L. Ron Hubbard, and he was kind of like get people in the door, uh, get them paying us, you know, more like more. <laughs> well, he was like get them paying me, uh, and that's really all we care about. He was not thinking long term. Uh, because any religion that doesn't encourage its followers to have children and to raise their children in the religion is, you know, pretty much doomed to doomed to fail. Uh, so and the next thing, is, I guess, is, is Scientology the good guy? And that's a complicated question because Scientology is a, is a cult, unquestionably. Um, it's very harmful to a lot of people. They have taken a lot of money from a lot of people in, you know, what would be in a different circumstance, probably akin to either fraud or, you know, some kind of scam. Uh, but the thing is, in this context, the person on the other side that we're comparing them to is the IRS. And, you know, a good rule of thumb is the government's always bad, but the IRS is like particularly nefarious for a number of reasons. As if you listen to episode one, uh, you know, with Mr. Gordon Call, the guy probably didn't owe taxes at all, but he just said, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to pay taxes. He was a farmer in North Dakota and the IRS decided, no, we're going to send this, we're going to send a message to everyone by coming after this guy. 
so you, these are not like, oh, you know, just just obey the law, please. You know, they are actively looking to secure their own power. And what Scientology did was threaten that power. And you can say, oh, they did it in an immoral way. And I would, I'm not going to disagree with you uh, necessarily, but I will say that, first of all, the, the actions in the 80s and 90s under the Office of Special Affairs was not like, they weren't killing people and breaking into their houses. They were really just doing what I think many people would be okay with, which is looking at government officials with the closest lens that you possibly can and and then you know judging them on that basis and then judging the actions of the institution that they're employed by on that basis because you know and this is just a, you know a hypothetical example i don't know if they ever found something like this exactly but if you if scientology were to discover that an irs agent is a pedophile and you know probably somewhat blatantly let's just say and then they say well the irs employs a pedophile and is the IRS's, it basically then makes the IRS say, well, do we fire this guy right away? Do we let one of our own get kicked to the curb? Or do we have to defend this guy? Then we're defending a pedophile, but we're also defending, uh, you know, a, an employee or a, a member of our institution. And that creates a, a contradiction where on paper, the government is moral, we're a country of laws, you know, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, criminals get punished or what we know to be like human tendencies in an institution, which is like defend the institution at all costs. Anybody associated with the institution must be defended. You know, and, and that's that's how Scientology operates too, but they're on the offensive here, right? Uh, so they, they cover up John Travolta in the same way the IRS would cover up a, uh, a criminal IRS agent. So is Scientology the good guy? No, but the IRS is worse, so screw them, basically, should be the view on it. Um, and also, you know, uh, Scientology didn't have to pay a billion dollars in taxes, right? First of all, a billion dollars is nothing. Uh, maybe it would have been slightly more in the 90s, but it's fucking nothing. And what is it being spent on? It's being spent on, like, real estate and new shoes for David Miscavige, which I understand he has a, a great affinity for, like, fancy Italian leather shoes. What would it be spent on by the government? More bombs to, like, throw in the Middle East? You know, some government, uh, you know, paper pushers pension. Like, you just have to think about where is this money actually going? Like, yeah, we want people to follow the law, but if in following the law they are enabling a worse system, you know, do we not kind of hope that they find a way to get out of that? And particularly after L. Ron Hubbard's death. I mean, it was kind of like, let's be honest, the, inertia, the institution's running on inertia, so there's not, they're not gaining in power. So the IRS is not going to become a theocracy and take over the country. So it's not, we don't, I can't even compare the U.S. government, which is like the most evil institution in the history of mankind, and, you know, a, a kind of kooky cult run by a little short guy who gets mad sometimes. It just, there is no comparison. So if you ever find yourself siding with the U.S. government over anybody, including Scientology, you need to reevaluate your position. Um, so and then... Final question, I guess, uh, of those I asked is, what does Scientology's victory over the IRS mean for the rest of us? And importantly, it means that it demonstrates that the U.S. government is not what it purports to be. Uh, on paper, supposedly, this is a country of laws. If you break the law, the government will come for you and give you a fair trial. And, da -da 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 -da. and you know, you've got to follow the rules. Bullshit. First of all, it's flat out you know, is patently false, but Scientology basically just get engaged in power politics and like threw that on its head because they didn't make the case. They didn't go into uh, Fred Goldberg's office and say, you know, this is our sincere religious belief. We really do think that, you know, they wouldn't have said this, but then, you know, uh, we really think Lord Xenu, uh, you know, put all these alien souls in us and we got to get rid of them and clear the planet. They wouldn't, that's not the case they made. They said, we have you effectively over a barrel. Like we are politically agitating to remove your institution from power. And it was unlikely the IRS would have ever been really abolished, but that was basically the threat is we are going to take you down um, unless you leave us the fuck alone. And the IRS folded. They didn't, and they didn't stand on their principle and say, no, you are not a religious institution. Uh, you are, uh, you know, just use You're just trying to do like financial fraud. Uh, you need to pay your taxes. No, they were like, oh, 
I am tired of, you know, having my personal life looked into. Fuck the law. We're going to carve out some exemption for you. You know, we'll, we'll put some fancy dealings on it. You know, we'll make you come up with the regulatory board that you can give all the members on. But, you know, basically they gave them whatever they asked for and they, the IRS put the seal of approval on it to make it legitimate. And the courts have... You know, there's been people who have sued the government over this because they're like, well, this is insane. We want to be able to get all these, like, caveats that Scientology has. And the courts have said, you know, okay, well, you might be right, but basically you can't force, my understanding is you can't force the IRS to do that for you. Uh, like, the IRS really can only, like, give that to you themselves. The court cannot compel the IRS to do that. Uh, this is, like, legal chicanery I don't fully understand and nobody besides a constitutional lawyer would get it, and, you know, you can make the law say whatever you want. But the point being is those people in court do not exercise the same power as David Miscavige and the Office of Special Affairs. The Office of Special Affairs, without an army, you know, they did it in the courts legally and, you know, maybe extra legally, but they exercised power that the courts alone cannot give just anybody. So it, you know, the best... It is the best example I am aware of, of highlighting contradictions between where, what the government says about the law and what actually happens. And of course, this happens on you know a daily basis, right? Rich people get away with not paying taxes due to like, I found this little exception in the law. That means I don't have to report this on my taxes or this belongs to this different corporate entity. But that also is a little bit different, right? They are not directly like putting a gun to Fred Goldberg, whoever heads the IRS. Now they're putting a gun to their head and saying, I'm not going to pay my taxes. They're just taking advantage of law, which obviously in some cases they helped write, but they're they're just like weaving in and out of an obstacle field. David Miscavige in Scientology kicked over the obstacle field and said, give us what we want. And that that is, to my knowledge, basically unparalleled in the United States. And like I said, they didn't do this with an army. I mean, they, they sort of did in the non-military sense. But they just did it with, I guess you could say, like, people power. Not that it was particularly popular, but they have enough people organized in such a way and with enough knowledge to get what they wanted. And I, I'll quote uh, David Miscavige here from his speech uh, that he gave in 1993 in L.A. where he announced that, you know, they won, basically. The war is over. Uh, he said, the power of our group is greater than you can imagine. What exactly does this mean? My answer is everything. The magnitude of this is greater than you can imagine. The future is ours. Now, he, obviously, being the head of Scientology, is saying, our group, we are the best. We, you know, we are going to, we can accomplish anything we want. I would say that is not the case. There's nothing inherent about Scientology, about the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard, that make it better than any other group. All Scientology is, when you really get down to it, is a group of extremely dedicated people with a common goal or who have lent their will to the goal of one man, uh, whether that be L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige. And there's no reason anybody can't do that. You know, the, the, I mean, the Black Panthers, just go back to episode one, the problem they suffered was their leadership was constantly being kind of like cut off. Uh, so they, they failed to get enough people you know, or enough uh, enough stability within an organization to rally enough people to, to make the impact I'm sure that they wanted. But Scientology, I, you could say it's luck or maybe they didn't have the same sabotaging. They certainly didn't. Um, but L. Ron Hubbard did, of course, sail the high seas to escape prosecution for a number of years. So there is that. They, they exercised power in the way that they found worked. You know, it, you know, to again compare the Black Panthers and Scientology, um, when there's actually some interesting um, interplay between kind of the Black Power movement and Scientology, but that's neither here nor there. Um, the Black Panthers, in some cases, particularly after Fred Hampton's death, as far as I'm aware, there was just a lot of shootouts, there was a lot of violence, you know, the organization decayed from a sort of activist thing, and there was a lot of you know, flat-out violence. And they didn't survive that to a large degree. The Black Panthers still exist, but they, you know, you compare their power level now to where they were in the 60s and 70s, it's not the same at all. Scientology 
had the problem of the Guardian's office going off the reservation. Well, they were they were in line with Hubbard's teaching, but they were you know outside of the law. They were breaking into people's houses. They were poisoning people. They were doing all kinds of you know basically CIA level stuff, which they got in trouble for because the CIA is not happy when other people do CIA things or the government generally. Um, and unless you're going to get rid of the government, you really don't want to do things like that because they're going to get you come down upon, uh, as was the case with Mary Sue Hubbard. I believe she died in prison. Uh, but Scientology survived. Hubbard didn't go to jail over that. They retained all their money, all their assets. Most of their followers didn't go to jail. And most of them obviously weren't criminals. So they had the opportunity to learn from that. Or more specifically, David Miscavige had the opportunity to learn from that crisis of the Guardian's office. And what does he do as soon as he gets enough power? He, you know, removes Mary Sue Hubbard and says, your way didn't work. It, you know, it, it failed to produce the result that we wanted. And once he, you know, rises and effectively takes over the church prior to L. Ron Hubbard's death, but obviously after his death he is in complete control, he takes a different tact. He says, we don't have an army. Uh, this subterfuge stuff is getting, is, is didn't work before, and now, of course, with, like, developments in the, you know, criminal investigation, I'm sure he's thinking, like, oh, we really can't do what we used to do. We're going to do it lawfare. And it works. And it, yeah, it doesn't work all the time, and sometimes you need a, a whole cult behind you to do it, but it, it can work. You can get carve-outs from the government that nobody else gets. And I tell you what, if this existed in a third-world country, you know, in, in Africa somewhere, um, you know, particularly corrupt countries like Equatorial uh, uh, Guinea, if some company there got a carve-out from the government on, tax, on a tax basis of, yeah, we don't have to pay taxes unless we want to. The United States, assuming it you know, bothered to comment on it at all, would say, this is, a, this is a terrible violation of the rule of law. This is corruption of the worst kind. You know, <laughs> maybe we need regime change, depending on the exact circumstances. But when it's in America, oh, it's constitutional, you know, we'll figure out a way to write in the law. We are the rule of law country, after all. Our democracy is sacred, you know, everybody's the same and egalitarian here. Bullshit. Bullshit. And no, everybody knows it's, uh, it's, it's not true. But it's, it's always good to see it highlighted. Um, so once again, you know, David Miscavige, Scientology is not the good guy, ultimately. But I guess you do have to have to thank him maybe send him, a, send him a little letter to say thank you for screwing with the irs um of course that does leave all the resources to come down on the rest of us a little bit more but you know take your victories where you can get them i suppose um so i guess other things i wanted to talk about briefly before i uh depart um sort of just interesting quips and, and points about scientology the one thing i think most people know about scientology assuming they haven't seen the south park episode or uh, know anything about that is that Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. Um, my understanding of his relationship to Scientology is that he's he's an adherent, um, but I don't. I think he's actually like there's a there's a ladder of ranks. I don't even think he's the top rank. I think he's one level down from that because uh, David Miscavige I think just doesn't want to let him be the same rank as him. As Tom briefly kind of stepped away from Scientology earlier in his in his life and it made like David Miscavige made it his sole go goal to I guess after beating the IRS to get Tom Cruise back on board um which uh, you know when you have the infrastructure to support celebrities as Scientology does in the form of that uh, building in the in LA called I think it's like the Celebrity Center which is basically like a super ritzy country club where everybody who works there is like sees you as God, effectively, because L. Ron Hubbard said so. Um, it's, you know, it's it's a little bit easier to sway celebrities in. Um, so I guess that may also be something people don't realize, is Scientology is not just a, uh, a religion where you give a lot of money, and then maybe you, like, you do get a plaque. They do, they love to give big trophies and stuff. But there are active, like, social benefits to being in Scientology. There's obviously some degree of network. But there's also a, a gigantic fancy castle in L.A. that you can go hang out with with a bunch of other famous people. 
Uh, so that's interesting. I don't know if everybody's anybody's ever seen some of Scientology's buildings in L.A. The other one I think that's more famous, uh, might be more well-known, is the uh, Big Blue Building. Um, I forget what it's called. Uh, it's I think it's run by the Sea Organization. Uh, it's basically a compound. Um, that's a... <laughs> That's kind of a fun thing. You could probably do a whole Scientology tour uh, uh, within L.A., you know, kind of a uh, a bus tour, I suppose, if you wanted. Uh, I don't know how many enthusiasts there are of Scientology lore. They're probably greater than the number of actual Scientology, though. Um, but, you know, I want to talk also a little bit about Hollywood specifically. I've been talking about celebrities, and Hubbard specifically wanted to target celebrities. Uh, I think it's interesting that in Hollywood, you know, people accept that there's power groups in certain contexts. In America, we very much are against, like, oh, I don't want to say that this group controls this, that, or the other thing. And in certain ways, like, that's okay. Uh, you're Like, you have license to do that in certain places. And Hollywood and Scientology is one of them. It's just generally accepted, or, you know, this might have been truer in the past, but... I don't know to what degree it still is true, that if you're a Scientologist in Hollywood, you have a, a leg up. Or if you're in with the church, uh, you're going to have more acting roles if that's if you're an actor. Or, you know, you're going to be in a room with a producer if you're a singer and you have an opportunity to talk to them. It's just a, it's just a given, which is not, like I said, is not something that in America you're generally allowed to say. Like, this group has a hold on this industry. Um, you know, if you said, for example, Indian people control all the 7-Elevens, they all run, they're all owned by an Indian. Uh, you know, and some, some people might be like, oh yeah, that's true. But in polite society, they would be like, oh my God, you can't say that. Uh, that's, you know, that's racist. But you say, yeah, Scientologists like have a pretty good control over Hollywood. Uh, people are like, oh yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, assuming that they know it, it's the case at all. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, what else do I want to talk about? I have a few notes here I wanted to go over. Um, specifically about L. Ron Hubbard. He, I, I think people kind of get the wrong idea about him. Because if you ever see him, he, particularly as he got older, looked like kind of a bad Einstein cosplayer. And he had balded on the top of his head pretty much. His uh, the sides of his hair grew out quite a bit. Uh, he was a lifetime smoker. He just looked ill, frankly. Um, there's very few pictures of him sort of in that stage of his life that I've been able to see because he lived pretty much in isolation. I think he was living out in like Hemet, California, where there's now a Scientology base. And he was just not not in a good way. Uh, and I feel like that, his isolation and his kind of general kookery make people think like, oh, he was just like a crazy guy. And that somewhat devalues him because that doesn't, that then doesn't really explain how he started a religion that thousands of people adhere to, some to the point of like being willing to commit felonies. Uh, he was incredibly charismatic. Uh, by any report, people who were Scientologists, used to be Scientologists, never were Scientologists. He was a very charismatic guy and he had a lot of interests that you kind of you know might not suspect he seemed to know he was kind of a jack-of-all-trades intellectually yeah he didn't do well in school at all he was not an expert on really anything uh, maybe on writing you could say but you know he seemed to have at least a passing interest in enough things that he could engage in a conversation with you uh, funnily enough one of them was music and he recorded an album uh, or at least at least one it might have been two or three while on uh, one of his sea voyages. I forget what it's called. It's like Apollo and the something or other, because it's one of his, I think that was like the flagship was the Apollo. Um, but yeah, he sings tracks in there, and the, all those, pretty much all the songs are about Scientology. So that's, if you ever want to like, you know, have your ears bleed for some reason, uh, check out L. Ron Hubbard's uh, sample track on, on the Apollo album. Um, but yeah, I think the, the foundations for most of what made Scientology successful as a mass, you know, quote-unquote mass religion were in its early days. Uh, that was when Hubbard was healthier, was on, was on land, um, you know, could engage with people a lot more, uh, did active training of people in his quote-unquote methods. Um, and then pretty much after that, it was, it was a lot of 
kind of scammy people, frankly, for lack of a better word. I mean, they they took his methods and they marketed it as a as self-help thing, which in the 60s and 70s was, you know, all the rage. Um, but the person of Hubbard kind of, I think, kind of got locked in a stasis in people's idea of him within Scientology. They didn't, most people didn't interact with him when he was, you know, living in the ocean surrounded by, like, a bunch of kids wearing naval uniforms who he would, if they misbehaved, throw them overboard as like a punishment. They didn't see him at the end of his life where he was building an e-meter, is my understanding, that was so powerful that it would have electrocuted him to death because he thought he was possessed by a thetan that was like an evil demon. The, 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 the image of him as God to Scientologists and the reality for pretty much the second half of his life is just totally totally different um and his eldest son uh, l ron hubbard jr uh spent a good chunk of his effort after he broke with scientology trying to locate his dad and you know basically uh, uh detract from him and uh destroy scientology because i think he he obviously understood that his dad was kind of a piece of garbage uh in his family life um that's really kind of all the thoughts i had on scientology uh, for the moment. Uh, I hope people can say that they've learned something and that they can, if nothing else, appreciate Scientology as a, uh, as a good example that you know, the state is not all, all powerful. And if you do it right, uh, you can bend it to your will, which obviously undermines the idea that the state is both impersonal and all powerful. Thank you for listening. This has been Death to America. Death to America.